0: Right, well, it's great to be here this morning with you all at Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. I will say that we, like I said earlier, we meet in an elementary school in just sort of a multi-purpose room, kind of a gymnasium. So when our kids walked in this morning, they saw all the seats and the screen. They were like, are we at a movie theater, Dad? <laughs> so they're very excited for the show. I told them that I was, I was the show. So, Well, it is a joy to be with you, and we are going to be looking at Romans 5. Verses 1 through 11, this incredibly rich and glorious passage. And so you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, Romans 5, 1 through 11. And uh, I'll just say as introductory comments, Romans is, is written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. He most likely wrote it from the city of Corinth. And it's somewhat, Romans is somewhat of Paul's kind of magnum opus although he might not have meant it that way, it contains the largest and fullest description of the gospel, the, the good news of Christianity. And this passage this morning that we're going to look at is really at the heart of the gospel. And so uh, it is it is an incredible truth. We will indeed praise God for all of eternity for this truth that we're about to unfold and look at this morning. And so Um, Let me go ahead and read our passage, Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that, uh, that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we are still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though even perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. we have now received reconciliation. Let me just pray briefly for a time in God's word. Lord, please give light to your word as we study it. Please, by your spirit, empower us to understand it and write its eternal truths on our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Joanne grew up in a... middle-class family. She described her childhood as hard. Her mother's 10-year battle with multiple sclerosis took a, a toll on Joanne and her family. But growing up, Joanne was always very imaginative. She loved to write. Well, The most traumatic day of Joanne's life was the day her mother died, New Year's Day, 1991. Joanne was 25. Later that year, Joanne started a job teaching English and began dating a man and they soon got married. Joanne had a baby named Jessica, but her marriage lasted only 13 months and once it ended, Joanne and her daughter moved back to England. Joanne and her daughter lived in a cramped apartment and Joanne was jobless and penniless. Yet around this time, Joanne, while on a train ride, had an idea for a book it was a fantasy children's book involving wizards and castles, and the main character was a boy named Harry. So Joanne began submitting the book to publishers, but she was turned down by all of them except one. small publisher printed her book but told Joanne not to quit her day job. But then a few years later, a larger publisher printed Joanne's book with the title Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Joanne Kathleen Rowling, or J.K. Rowling as she's better known, became one of the wealthiest and most powerful women in Britain over the next decade. We love rags to riches stories, don't we? We love stories of people who went from nothing or having nothing from the bottom and going to the top and rising to prominence. Well, our passage this morning tells us of a rags-to-riches story, a spiritual rags-to-riches story, and it involves us. We, all of us, every single person on earth, is the person that spiritually wore rags. And yet we're going to see in this passage this morning that we were poorer than J.K. Rowling ever was, and yet we've been made richer than she Will ever be. So the main theme of this passage this morning is really simple. It is God justifies sinners. God justifies sinners. That's the main theme of this passage. And then just to give you an idea of where we're going, we're going to have three points we're going to look at. First, the benefits of our justification. Second, the source of our justification. And then lastly, the assurance of our justification. So three points, the benefits of our justification, the source, and then the assurance of our justification. And the benefits of our justification, our first point is going to be the longest point by far, just to give you a heads up. <clears throat> so first, the benefits of our justification. And there's three benefits that Paul outlines in this passage. So we're going to look at all three of those benefits of our justification. And so first, what is justification? Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what does he mean, justified by faith? Well, back in chapter 3, Paul writes, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. What Paul is saying is that we were not righteous. We could not stand before God based on our own merit or based on our obedience. We've all sinned, and the the penalty for that sin is death and separation from God. That's what Paul says in in Romans chapter 3 and all over, really, the New Testament. And yet, even though our sin deserves separation from God and death, God is incredibly gracious. He sent his son, Jesus. God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life that we could never live in our place, and then he died in our place the death that we deserve to die because of our sin on the cross. So that when we believe in Christ, our sin is paid for. It's it's done. It's gone. But not only is our sin paid for, we are now clothed in the righteous life of Christ. He takes the perfect righteousness of Christ and his perfect life, and he credits it to our account. This isn't just something Paul talks about back in Isaiah in Isaiah 53. Isaiah talks about how by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their sin. This glorious truth of justification is all throughout the Bible. And so uh, one way you can, uh, maybe a, a good way to remember this justification that we are perfect just as Christ is It's remember justified. I am, it's just as if I'd always obeyed as Christ did and just as if I've never sinned as Christ never did. Not only does he pay for our sins, he covers us in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And so God looks at us and it's just as if we've never been selfish. It's just as if we've never indulged in sin. It's just as if we've always served others, always spoke kindly to others. Always were patient with our kids. Always loved our neighbor as ourselves. Always loved God above all things. If you are a Christian and you believe that Jesus died in your place and rose again, when God the Father looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. God is continuing to grow us, in, and that process is called sanctification. He's conforming us to the image of Of his son, but when someone believes the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are immediately justified. It's a one-time finished act. It's it is finished. And this is really the heart of Christianity. Many people believe that Christianity is basically about being a good person or becoming a better person. But in reality, Christianity is, is not so much good advice, it's good news. What is news? News is something that has been done. It's past tense, right? Just as an example, the day after VE Day in World War II, victory in Europe, the day that the Nazis surrendered to the Allies, the day after VE Day, people picked up newspapers all over the world to read about the Nazis' surrender to the Allies, the end of World War II, and people celebrated all over the world. But it would have been bizarre if someone picked up a newspaper, reading that headline, and said to themselves, I need to be a better soldier. That just would not have made sense. It would have been an improper response to that news. The right response would be to read the news that it's been done and to celebrate what had been done. In a similar way, Christianity is about something that has been done for us. It's good news, not advice It's primarily a message to be believed. But believing this good news certainly will not leave you the same. Believing the good news of the gospel will change everything about your life. But it's not primarily advice. It's good news that changes everything. And if this sounds new to you, or maybe different than what you thought Christianity was all about, I would love to talk with you after, or I'm sure many of the folks here would love to talk with you and answer any questions. Uh, but if this does sound new or bizarre or strange to you regarding Christianity, I would highly encourage you to reach out to someone here um, and, and research more about what Christianity is, because this is actually the heart of it. It's, it's the message of Christianity. And I think that is so intru- uh, important. But the truth is, is, many Christians sometimes don't believe that this good news is all that good. What do I mean by that? Well, for some Christians, this news isn't that great because maybe we don't see our need for grace all that much. In other words, some Christians say, "Do I really need justification?" Well, I think for I think that's perfectly natural, and I think that's very common. But I think for when, when we're in that situation, when we think, "Well, yeah, surely I don't think I'm perfect," but Am I really that bad on a a day-to-day basis? Do I really have a deep need, a desperate need for a savior? This is where our understanding of sin, I think, needs to deepen. One pastor said that Christians should repent of the bad things they do, but they should also learn to repent for the bad reasons they do good things. We must start to see not only the overt sins of our life, but we should also see the sins of our motivations and our thoughts and our desires. The more we will do this, the more we'll begin to feel our desperate need of a Savior every single day. One pastor, Rob Rayburn, said this, I think it's so helpful, he said, we must understand that every day as Christians, we consume barrels of grace. And that's how the Christian life goes. The longer we follow Christ, our sin seems worse and worse to us. And yet, the cross appears bigger and bigger. And that's how the Apostle Paul's life was. Earlier in his writings, he referred to himself as the least of the apostles. Okay, that's humble. You would think maybe later, you know, he got more confident. Actually, no. Later on in his writings, he refers to himself as the chief of sinners, And that's exactly the progression of the Christian life. The more we go on with Christ, the more we see, wow, my my sin is deeper and more inherited me than I ever thought could be possible. And yet the cross grows bigger and bigger. And we see that, uh, as Corey Ten Boom said, there's no pit so deep that Christ and his grace is not deeper still. And so for some, we don't think that we need grace and our, our repentance needs to deepen but for some, we don't really think that we need justification, or, or maybe we don't trust justification. So if some of us say, do we really need justification and grace? Other of us, uh, say that, okay, I, I see my need for grace, and I realize my desperate need of a Savior, but can I really trust it? Is, is my sin really gone? You know, I'm sure we've all seen those laundry detergent commercials that are on the infomercials and stuff, especially if you're up late at night, and you know, you've, you've seen the commercials, It's the, t- uh, the t-shirt with a really bad stain on it, and they're selling this detergent, and honestly, I think these commercials are, are pretty ridiculous and kind of funny. Sometimes the stain on the t-shirt is blood, <laughs> which I think is ridiculous, it caused one comedian to say, you yeah, know, if you've got a t-shirt with blood stains all over it, maybe laundry isn't your biggest problem right now, and I think I'd have to agree. Um, but in these commercials, they, you know, they wash the shirt with detergent, and then voila, right? The stain is gone, you can't see a trace of it. But we all know that that's not really how it works. I mean, we've bought the detergent, we've washed it, and we see there's still somewhat of a stain there. Some kind of stain remains. And I think we think this way about justification. I think we think this way about our forgiveness with Christ. We think... Yeah, I'm sure God forgives sin, but come on. There's some kind of stain remains. God holds our sin over us in in some fashion or in some way still. But this is just not true. Christ, when he was on the cross dying, he yelled out three very important words. It is finished. He was saying sin was paid for it's done there's no punishment left for sin it is finished period but we love to put a comma there don't we sometimes sometimes we like to say it is finished but uh if i really want to be right with god i need to do x y or z it is finished period the stain of our sin is gone because of christ You know, we can also—another reason that I think we don't trust our justification or God's forgiveness is pride. You know, our justification, this passage, teaches us that we haven't justified ourselves before God, and we never will. And that's tough for our pride to swallow. And so because it's tough for our pride to swallow, oftentimes we turn the cross into a kind of a a second chance— because we love second chances. And so we turn the cross into a kind of, you know, God, if you would just forgive me this once, then I'll show you that I can do much better. If you just kind of clean up this mess right now that I've made, then I'll show you that I, what I'm really capable of. It was just this one time that, that got away from me. And so we reserve repentance and, and needing forgiveness for the, the really bad times in our life. But on a day-to-day basis, we think, I can can justify myself. But we can be sure, friends, that if we're going to stand before God justified, it will never be, ever, on the basis of our life and obedience, but on Christ's alone. When we get to heaven as Christians, our spiritual resume will have one word on it. Christ. Nothing else will do. And that's why Paul follows this verse by saying, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand in grace. Our entire Christian lives, we don't move on to it. Standing is stationary. He didn't say we've walked through grace. We stand in grace. We never move on from it. And so the first benefit of our justification, I'd said there was going to be three benefits from our justification. The first is a perfect standing with God because of Christ and his finished work on the cross. But Paul isn't done expounding on the benefits of our justification. Justification also gives us a heart that worships God. And so look at what Paul says in verse 2. Look down at verse 2 with me. It says, through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of god we take hope in the glory of god grasping justification and the forgiveness of god creates in us a desire to see god glorified you know it's really hard to get excited about worshiping god and seeing him glorified Without understanding this message, without understanding the gospel and justification, it is really hard to get excited about worshiping God. But only when we grasp this will we be able to say, praise God in him alone. I've done nothing. Lord, to you be all the glory and honor and wealth and credit and praise. We will only say that with joy in our hearts When we grasp this gospel of justification and then in verse three through five Paul expands on yet another benefit of our justification our hope and suffering the reason we can have hope and suffering is because we know that we will have peace with God if we have peace with God then we know that our suffering and the suffering that God brings into our life is not God's rejection of us but the good and loving designs of our good father. So Jonathan Edwards was a, an American pastor and theologian in the 18th century. He preached his first sermon at the age of 18 years old. And it was on the verse Romans 8:28. and we know that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And the thesis of his sermon, kind of the main theme, was that Christians should be happy. Christians should always be happy. And maybe you think, I don't know, a little oversimplistic. He was 18 years old, you know, maybe he had some maturing to do. But listen to his outline Christians should always be happy because their bad things will turn out for good, their good things can never be taken away from them, and their best things are yet to come. Not even suffering can dim the hope that the gospel brings us. But how specifically does suffering bless us? Let's just take this verse one phrase at a time here, what Paul says. First, he says that suffering produces endurance. Okay, well, that makes sense, right? I mean, when we suffer, we wait patiently on the Lord, so if we trust him, we endure. Next, Paul says endurance produces character. And this word character means something that's left over after it's been tested, Think about maybe something that's like silver or gold is refined through a fire. It's purified. It's what's left after a testing period. That's sort of what this word means. So oftentimes we think the Lord grows us spiritually by we just kind of sprinkling some sanctification on us, right? We pray, Lord, grow us in faith or grace and, and whatever, and we think the Lord's just going to answer that prayer. Boom, the next day we're going to wake up, be more, you know, have more faith, be more gracious. And yet this process of producing character is actually much more arduous than that, right? So whenever a ship is built, any sort of boat, especially one that's going to carry many people, the ship is subjected to what is called a sea trial. And this is when a ship is taken out into the open sea and and all sorts of tests are done on the ship to see if it's reliable and seaworthy. And if malfunctions or or imperfections are found during this time, then they can be fixed and then the end result is that the ship is declared seaworthy or certified. Well, in the same way, God allows our faith to be tested by enduring suffering. And because we know that we've been reconciled to God through His Son, we can see these times of suffering not as God's rejection of us, as I said earlier, but of His good and love toward us. So we might ask, well, how could suffering be a sign of God's love for us? How could this intense pain or trial that I'm going through be God's love for me? That that just doesn't make sense. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis, says that we often want to think of God not as a father, but as kind of a, a grandfather. A grandfather that lets us do whatever we want as long as we're happy. But think about this. It's only with people that we don't really care about that we will give happiness to on any terms. It's actually, it's the people that we love deeply that we're willing to see suffer in order that they might be truly happy. You know, love, real love, is much greater, much grander, and much scarier than mere kindness. Like an artist's painting, we are God's divine work of art. We are something that God is making, and therefore he will not be satisfied until we've taken a certain shape. And and I think it's natural, in fact, C.S. Lewis says it's natural for us to want God to design us for a less glorious, arduous task than this. But to ask God for a life of happiness without suffering, is actually to ask God for less love, not more. It's because God loves us that he allows us to suffer. And so Lewis writes this. When Christianity says God loves man, it means that God loves man. Not that he has some indifferent concern for our welfare, but that in awful and surprising truth, We are the objects of his love. God is not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way, nor is he the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but he is the consuming fire himself. You asked for a loving God, you have one. God loves us. And that means he uses suffering, even terrible suffering, to discipline us and shape us into the image of his son. You asked for a loving God, you have one. Finally, Paul says that this character produces hope. When we see our faith strengthened through enduring suffering, it produces hope in us. See, um, suffering is like a, a sifter. You see the sifters that people look for gold in, they put sand in there and you sift through the smaller things until just the larger things are left? Well, like sand falls through a sifter and leaves only larger items, the sifter of suffering causes false hopes in our life to pass away until only larger and more substantial hopes are left. And it's through the sifter of suffering that Christians discover a hope too large to be sifted out. This hope is so large that we can stand on it, we can depend on it because it's the hope that because we, were, we are forgiven, we will see God. It's the hope that God one day will make all things right and will wipe away every tear. We have hope and suffering. And so we've looked at the benefits of our justification <clears throat> and what incredible benefits they are. We have a perfect standing with God. We have a heart that worships God. And we have hope and suffering. And so now let's look at the second point, the source of our justification. Paul explains in verses 6 through 8 that we were all weak and sinful and desperate. Paul is explaining the rags that we wore spiritually before God saved us. In verse 7, he adds a painful blow to our pride. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Paul's saying, look, maybe for a good friend or for someone really important or a righteous person, someone would die, but you weren't that. He's saying we were, we were the opposite of good. We're the opposite of deserving. We were enemies of God, and we did not deserve his grace. And it it's only because of Christ that we have peace with God. Christ is is the source of our justification. And it's because we've been saved by grace that we should be extremely humble as Christians, right? I mean, the human's heart default is to lift itself up above others. This kind of spiritual pride says, see, God died for me because I'm worth dying for. But Paul methodically throughout this passage, is underscoring, and I hope you see this, he's saying throughout this whole passage, it's not us, it's not us, it's not us, and at the same time saying, it's all Christ, it's all Christ, it's all Christ. He's saying, you are not the source of God's forgiveness. It's not because you were lovable. It's not because you were good and righteous. You didn't deserve it. It is Christ that is the source of your justification. Keeping a sinful heart humble is like trying to keep a large balloon submerged underwater at the bottom of a lake, right? I mean, it just keeps wanting to rise up, rise up. But the cross is like a 10-ton weight attached to that balloon. It keeps us low. The gospel humbles us into the ground, and yet at the same time lifts us up because of Christ's incredible love for us. It is through Jesus, it is through Christ alone that we have been reconciled to God. He is a source of our justification. And finally, the assurance of our justification, our third and final point, the assurance of our justification. Paul writes in verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Paul here explains that those justified through Christ will uh, escape the wrath of God for sin that is coming. And I think wrath is something that needs to be explained today, God's wrath, because when we hear the word wrath today, we picture God's face distorted, just kind of going crazy in some sort of blind rage. And in fact, God's wrath is much different than that. God's wrath or anger is much different than our anger and wrath, and so, just to give you sort of just a, a brief thought on wrath, we do know, right, we would all agree that there is such a thing as righteous anger. There's, there's a good anger, sort of a good wrath at incredibly evil things like human trafficking, gross injustice, murder, extravagant greed. In fact, we can probably all recall a time when we saw someone get angry for a good reason. And in those moments, I bet that you didn't think to yourself, man, what a monster. I could never trust that person. And In fact, probably the opposite happened, right? If you see someone get angry for a good reason, you say, wow, that person is a good person. They care about what's right, and they hate what's wrong and evil. I could trust that person. And so God's wrath far from actually making him not trustworthy makes him most trustworthy. And so wrath or anger can be a good thing. The the reason we usually have a problem with God's wrath is because we don't see our sin as something worth getting angry about. We don't see how serious our sin is to God. But just as a as some background, let's just recap our relationship with God. God created us, he gave us everything that we would ever need for life, and yet every single one of us has spit in his face and said, no thanks, I want to be the God of my life. We have betrayed this most faithful spouse, and so God has every reason to be angry, right? He has every reason to give us the death and separation from him that our sin deserves, This wrath of God is real. God hates sin, and one day he will punish it. And yet in his grace, he delays for a time until we either die and meet God or when Christ comes again. But at some point, we will face God. Don't bet against it. We have two options. We can either die in our sins and face the wrath that is to come, or we can die in Christ and be saved. We think God's wrath makes him unworthy of our trust, but in fact, his wrath for sin makes him the most worthy of our trust. It's a sign of his goodness. And the fact that he died for our sin shows that he's also the most loving and compassionate and gracious to trust in Christ. And then lastly, in verse 10, Paul uses an argument <clears throat> from the greater to the lesser. Right? He says, if God was willing to send his son to die in our place, when we were not deserving, when we were sinners and enemies, then why would he not save us in the future from the wrath that is to come, right? To, to be reconciled. And so that's the promise that Christ holds out to us. Trusting in Christ now is the only way to be justified before God, but it's also the only way to be saved in the future. And it certainly will happen. Those who are in Christ will be saved, not only now, but on that day. And so it's a free gift, trust in Christ. I would use Paul's word from 2 Corinthians 5. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Christ is our only hope. Well, I hope you see now that the greatest rags-to-riches story involves us. I mean, think of where you would be or who you would be apart from Christ. In closing, I just want to tell you about one more person who went from rags to riches. His name was John, and John was on the run. He had served time in prison, but once he got out, found he couldn't find a job anywhere because of his record. And so he broke the law again while on parole, and then the authorities were after him. He got desperate. He was hungry living on the streets and scared. A priest took him in for a night. And he did something, John did something, that he never thought he would do. He stole all the priests' silver and fled in the middle of the night. He didn't get far before the authorities caught him and brought him back to the priest. And John lied, said that the priest told him to take the silver. And John could hardly make eye contact with the priest. He was embarrassed, he was ashamed, and he knew that he was about to serve life in prison. And then the priest spoke. And John could not believe his ears. The priest didn't press charges. And then he went on to say to John, Brother, you actually forgot the most valuable silver of all that I gave you. Take this and be on your way. That's the story of John, or Jean Valjean, from Victor Hugo's book, Les Mis. It was turned into a movie, a musical. The priest's generosity completely changed Jean Valjean's life. The priest's grace with him was so extravagant, so mind-boggling, that it completely upended Jean Valjean's life. And he prayed to God because he knew that the only reason that the priest was so gracious with him was because God had been so gracious with that priest. I've thought about this story many times throughout my Christian life. And I've wondered how I would respond if I was that priest. What if I was at a coffee shop and someone grabbed my laptop and ran out the door. Would I run after them saying, You forgot the charger? <laughs> you know? I'm ashamed to say that I hold on to my possessions much more tightly than the priest did. I can also harbor pride and self righteousness in a way that this gospel of grace simply does not allow. What about you, friends? How firm of a grip does this glorious gospel of grace have on you? When's the last time that you stared at this radically gracious gospel until it made you radically gracious? When's the last time you stared at this profoundly humbling gospel until it made you profoundly humble? When's the last time you stared At this precious Savior, Jesus Christ, until your heart flooded with love toward him, toward the Savior who loved you and gave himself for you. Has this gospel made you say recently, Lord, you've done it all. Please use up my life for your glory so that everyone knows how wonderful you are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you that you, through your righteous one, have made many to be accounted righteous. Lord, we do not deserve this gift. That is the understatement of a lifetime. And yet, you've made us sons. You've made us daughters. You've covered us in the perfect righteousness of your son. You've given us a heart that worships you. You've given us hope and suffering. Lord, I pray that you would bring us to worship you, fix our eyes on you constantly in this glorious truth. Lord, help us not to move on from it, but help us to stand in this grace. We love you. We thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.